So amen, amen. Happy Easter. Hope everybody's doing well. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to John chapter 3. Uh, John chapter 3 is where we'll be. If you do not have a Bible, uh, no worries, it'll be behind me uh, on the screen. And so uh, we, uh, as a church, we're praying through uh, what exactly we wanted to talk about uh, from God's Word uh, about on Easter. And uh, God really just kind of led us and, and really moved on our hearts to uh, talk about uh, life change, and uh, that's why we celebrate baptisms on Easter. Uh, and so over the past few weeks, we've been in a series called The Gospel Changes Everything, where we've been looking at different encounters uh, with Jesus and, and individuals in the Bible. And, and it's really awesome to look into the scriptures, specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and really look into who Jesus is. And so there are a lot of people in this room um, and so with the size uh, room that we're in right now, uh, I would be willing to bet that some of us have a view of Jesus that was probably shaped by something other than God's Word, whether that's a person or whether that's grandma, granddad, or uh, whether that's uh, just social media, whatever it is that you look to. And so what we want to do today is to look into God's Word, and we want to see Jesus firsthand as if you and I were talking to him uh, today and how he would deal with people. And so today we're going to be talking about a man by the name of Nicodemus. And so if you start with me, John chapter 3, uh, verse 1, and we'll start reading from there. It says this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now there's a few important things as we read the initial parts of this story, uh, namely a few things about the context and who Nicodemus is that we need to understand to know why Jesus spoke to him in a few seconds the way he spoke to him. So the first thing we learn about Nicodemus is that he is a Pharisee and not only a Pharisee, but he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, those are a lot of religious words because that's who Nicodemus was. He was a very religious man. A Pharisee would have been religious. Not only that, they would have uh, Jewish ruling council. He would have had power. He would have had wealth in the Jewish uh, kind of sect of people. Uh, so this guy would have looked like church, smelled like church. He would have been the guy if you went to the town square that was praying over the dinner, and he was preaching, leading Sunday school classes, all of this stuff. Um, and, and so, but another thing is if you keep reading in the Bible, Jesus begins to tell us more and more about these people called Pharisees, right? So in Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus has a lot to say about the Pharisees, and there really probably isn't what you'd think he would say. Uh, Jesus was very hard on religious people. Uh, a lot harder on religious people, in my opinion, than he was even on people that were lost and knew they were far from God, because a lot of these religious people uh, were caught up in that very thing, religion. They were doing a lot of things so that the outside of their life and publicly their life would look religious, but then on the inside of their hearts, they didn't really love God. They were doing it for all of the wrong reasons. And so in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus kind of gives them the business, so to speak, and tells them that they are like whitewashed 
tombs, right? And that's an interesting language. Well, let me explain it. So if you go to a graveyard, you see tombstones. Usually, if the people are doing a good job, they're, they're whitewashed and they look real nice and pretty. But it doesn't change the fact that you're in a graveyard and there are dead bones and uh, up under these, these gravestones. Well, that's what Jesus was saying. He's saying, hey, guys, y'all are like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You dress nice. You're doing all the right things. But when you get to the core of who you are, you're full of sin and greed and, and just, just basically deadness. You're, you're, you're not, you don't have a relationship with God. Uh, there's another story in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 9 through 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll tell you about it where Jesus gives a story about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And he tells this story about a tax collector who knows he's sinful and needs Jesus to save him, and he understands that, and he falls to his knees when he sees Jesus and says, save me, O God. And then he tells the other person in the story was a Pharisee who was kind of looking back in the story and saying, man, I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector and this sinner that's, that's bowing before God. And then Jesus goes on to say, it's not the Pharisee that, get, that receives salvation in this story, it's actually the tax collector. And so again, you kind of see this judgmental self-righteousness uh, in the Pharisees where they don't really see their sin, and because they don't see their sin, they don't really see their need for Jesus, so they make uh, religion really about themselves. And then lastly, maybe my favorite uh, is John chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, and he's talking to them, and uh, he tells them that they read the Bible, and they know the Bible, but they know the Bible for the wrong reasons, right? And so they know a lot about the Bible. Even most of them would have a lot of the Scripture memorized, but Jesus says, uh, you're missing the point of the Bible, like the Bible is to testify to you about Jesus and your need for Christ and your need for salvation, but you guys are using it as a tool for your own gain and for your own good instead of using it as a revelation of Christ and a revelation of who God is. And so we see that this is who Jesus is encountering in this story. He's a very religious, powerful man. He's very wealthy. But we also see that he's interested in Jesus, which is a big deal because this is kind of a change in the posture of most of the Pharisees. Because most of the Pharisees were so prideful and so full of knowledge that they didn't really think anybody could help them. But uh, Nicodemus had noticed there's something different about this Jesus guy. He's doing miracles the way he teaches. He has a lot of authority. This guy is from God, and I'm convinced that he's from God. And so we see Nicodemus come and try to seek Jesus out, but he also is interested in him just as a teacher and a miracle worker from God, which we both know Jesus is a lot more than a teacher and a miracle worker. He's the Savior of the world. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's our Savior and the Lord of the universe. And so not only that, but there's another important detail that, that Nicodemus comes. Did you notice what time of day he came? Night, right? Uh, play on words. This is Nick at night, right? So Nickelodeon, um, Nick at night, he comes to Jesus at nighttime. Can anybody guess why he would come to Jesus uh, at nighttime? Well, he didn't want to be seen. He wanted to be in the cover of darkness because he was very worried about what the other Pharisees and religious leaders would think about him kind of getting a side conversation 
with Jesus because as you would know, uh, in, the, in, the, in the synagogue with the Pharisees, they weren't talking a lot about Jesus in a good way. They weren't really interested in him. They were interested in doing away with him because he was taking power away from them and they wanted it to be about them and not about Christ. And so we see that God has already began to start working in Nicodemus's heart, but he's kind of a secret uh, Christian at this point. I don't think he's a Christian, but he's, he's just trying to live in secret and, and stay away uh, from these religious people. Now let's see, how does Jesus talk to him? That's the question, verse three. So Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Somebody say born again. Born again, that's a, a very interesting language there. How many of you guys have heard the term born again before? Uh, it can be very confusing, and so I'm glad I wanna talk about it a little bit. But first, this is interesting. Like Jesus meets this guy, and this is the first time they've met, to our knowledge, based on scripture, and this guy comes to Jesus, he asks him a question, Jesus doesn't really introduce himself. That's really what I would have thought. Hey, I'm Jesus, I'm the savior of the world, blah, blah, blah. No, Jesus comes straight out of the gate with the right hook of, you need to be born again or you're not going to heaven. And so one of the things that we've seen over the past three weeks and the stories that we've looked at is Jesus is a straight shooter. Like Jesus is very, very good and very, very direct with people. Like he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't talk superficially. He literally gets straight to the person's heart that he's talking to. We saw this with the woman at the well last week where we see a woman who uh, had had five husbands. Uh, she was living with another guy. She, Jesus basically had identified that she was trying to fill her heart and satisfy her heart with men and relationships and sex, and it wasn't working. And so uh, he comes to this woman, the first thing he says is, hey, go get your husband. And it's like, oh my goodness, like what in the world? And so Jesus goes straight again to the heart of the situation. We saw it two weeks ago with Zacchaeus, where Jesus comes straight into the town where Zacchaeus lives, goes straight to him and says, come down today. Today's the day of salvation in your life. And he changed his life forever. And so we see just a very direct way of talking to people uh, that we get in Jesus. So the question of today is what does it mean to be born again? And I want you to know that the phrase born again literally means born from above. It means born from above. And we've, we've, the Old Testament tells us a little bit about what this idea of being born again is like. So I want you to, uh, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen, but Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 through 27 to me, explains this the best, right? And so this is one of the things that John is referencing and Jesus is referencing in this story. So let's read it, verse 25. This is an Old Testament prophet speaking on behalf of God, and here's what he says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. This is God, a prophet, uh, through a prophet talking to the Israelites about what is to come in the new covenant uh, which Jesus came to bring about uh, when he came to earth. Verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and it will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my Laws. And so what we see is Jesus is talking about a time when he would come 
where salvation is going to look a little bit different, where people, uh, when they receive Christ or believe in Christ, they are going to receive a new heart, a new spirit, their old heart that they were born with, uh, that has an inkling towards sin, would be replaced with a new heart uh, that would be replaced, uh, or that was replaced with a new heart that wanted to live for God and love the things of God. And this is a supernatural thing that we are talking about here. And, and the reason Jesus goes to this language is because he knew that Nicodemus had a real need. He needed a change of heart, a real spiritual transformation. Uh, this is what being born again is all about, a radical transformation at the heart level, at the deepest level of who you are. You see, this is what differs in religion and the gospel. Religion tries to change your behavior from the outside in. Do this, don't do this, but it never deals with the root of the problem. It'd be like a doctor treating cancer and treating the symptoms, symptoms of cancer without getting to the root cause of all the issues in your life. But Jesus is different. He deals with the root and then it plays out into the rest of our life. Listen to how Paul talks about it in Titus chapter three, verses three through eight. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Paul said, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our, our Savior appeared, talking about Jesus, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his grace and his mercy. He saved us through the washing of what? Rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul says, this is what salvation is. Salvation is rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God cleanses us from our sin and fills us with his Holy Spirit, which fundamentally changes our identity. It changes who we are and then begins to transform our life. Paul's language is, you were this, a sinner, and you were walking in the ways of sin, and now you're this. You were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, envious, full of hate. Now you've been made new and your life is devoted to the things of God and doing what is good. So in order for us to understand being born again, first we must understand that sin is not just something that we do. Like sin is who we are. Let me explain that. So sin, for most of us, probably our view of sin is we go to the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not lie, steal, shouldn't have other idols, shouldn't commit adultery, and that is very right. We should not do those things. But if you think about what God was doing when he put the Ten Commandments in place, one of the things he was doing was showing us that the standard of God was unattainable for us. Like even if we tried as hard as we could, we would never be able to uh, follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. And because of that, he wanted it to reveal in us that we have a heart problem, that our sin runs very, very 
uh, deep. The heart of the problem is not just our behavior. It's way deeper than that. The heart of our problem is our heart. I'm sin runs very deep. Ezekiel calls it the heart of stone that we're all born with, right? How do I know this? Well, uh, experientially, my daughter is 18 months old, and uh, I've not done any training with her about how to be selfish. Um, I've not talked to her about if she doesn't get her way, then she needs to cry and get on the floor and, and raise Cain. I didn't teach her that. Uh, I've not taught her to hate the word no, I've tried to teach her to understand the word no, but for some reason, she doesn't like it. And when she doesn't get what she wants, when she wants, she cries. I didn't have to train her that way. She was born that way. And so each of us are the same. We're born into sin is what the Bible teaches us. At the core of our heart, we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And when we can't do that, we feel trapped or imprisoned or we feel like we're not free. The Bible would call it enslaved. And so that's where the Bible teaches that that's how we're born, enslaved to sin. And we have an issue that our heart wants to do what it wants to do when it wants to do it. And that's where Jesus came in and he understands this is what Nicodemus needs to hear. He needs to hear that being, bo being born again is not about uh, a person, a bad person with a heart of stone trying to do better, trying harder, or doing better. It's about God literally doing heart transformation. It's about a dead person being raised to life. I mean, it's the picture of Easter that Jesus rose from the dead to life as a new person, as the new Christ. God's not interested in making you and I better. He wants to make us new. He wants to give us a new heart, a new spirit, new desires so that we can joyfully live for God. Like Jesus is not interested in begrudging Christians that do not want to do the things of God. Like actually you do more harm to the kingdom of God when you hate the things of God and you're trying to do them than you do when you joyfully want to do them. And this is what he is doing with Nicodemus because he knows this is exactly what Nicodemus is missing. Nicodemus's religious checklist was great but he was missing the point. His heart was far from God. He had perfect church attendance. He prayed six times a day. He knew his Bible better than most of us. He led Sunday school classes and led teachings in the temple, but all of it was outward behavior modification rather than inward heart transformation. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, Nick, you're missing it. You're missing the point. And let's see what else he says. Verse four, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Valid question. Uh, Nicodemus is thinking physically. He's like, listen, I love my mama. My mama loves me. But when I was eight or nine pounds and came out of my mama, it was hard for her. No way she's gonna want an adult to crawl back in the womb and try to be delivered at what I weigh now. All right? So he's thinking physically, but listen to Jesus. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So he expects Nicodemus to know this because of his knowledge of scripture. Verse eight, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of 
the Spirit. So again, we see Nick is kind of lost in this conversation. He doesn't really know because a lot of times Jesus will use physical metaphors to explain spiritual realities. We kind of saw that with the woman at the well too. But here he's using the wind and the idea of being born again as a spiritual uh, picture. And so Jesus is explaining to him that being born again is a work of the Spirit. Quit thinking about it physically and think about what I'm trying to teach you. It's not the work of man. Man or religion will never produce uh, the, the being born again. Verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But Jesus says, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So again, Nicodemus is baffled. So Jesus goes back to the Old Testament because, again, he would have known this. And we may look at Nicodemus and say, wow, uh, what an idiot. But here's what I want every person in this room to hear. When you are trapped in religion and you surround yourself with other religious people, the word of God in a lot of ways can seem foreign. And you don't get it because your whole life you've been taught a different religion than the religion that we see in Christ and in the gospel. And so there are people right now in this room, as I was uh, about 12 years ago, that feel like they're a Christian. Come to church, we're here on Easter, but at the end of the day, we're in religion and not in the gospel and not in what it means to be born again. So we need to understand that we can relate with Nicodemus here. So Jesus points him back to the Old Testament story in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. I don't expect you to know this, so I'm going to explain it to you. So the Israelites were disobedient, as they were a lot of times uh, with, with God after he took them through the Red Sea. And so they're, they're in this situation where they're rebelling against God, and God calls down a curse on his own people. And the way he curses them is he sends venomous snakes into their camp to bite people and kill people, right? And so they come in, uh, rattlesnakes break out everywhere. I don't know how many of us have been to the rattlesnake roundup over in Claxton, uh, but I don't want any part of that. In my opinion, good snakes are dead snakes. There's no kind of good snakes, so kill, the, kill all of them. So... That's my picture. Uh, if not, you had not read the Bible. Obviously, Satan comes in the form of a serpent, snake, kill him, right? So uh, picture there. Either way, these venomous snakes come into the camp of Israel. Of course, they were panicking. Rattlesnakes break out in your house. You ever seen people run and scream? I run and scream when I see uh, rattlesnakes. So everybody in here should, unless you're just way tougher than me, and you may be that. So panic breaks out in the Israelite camp because the snakes are there. People are dying. Snakes are biting people. And then God comes to Moses and says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab one of these snakes. I want you to put it on top of a pole. And I want you to put it in the middle of the camp. At that point, you're like, hold on now. I was on board until you told me to grab the snake. And then I'm out, God. So he grabs the snake. He puts it on top of this pole. And then God tells Moses to tell the people in the camp to look to the snake on the pole and they will receive life, and they will not die. They will live. At that point, you're like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. 
All right, but now flash forward to the New Testament with Jesus. Jesus was hung on a pole, which was a sign of cursing, the same way the snakes were a sign of cursing. And we, as believers, receive life when we look to Jesus, who was elevated on the cross on our behalf. And so he points Nicodemus back, and he says, hey, you remember this story? Well, this is what I'm talking to you about. So he goes on, and he, he, he jumps into the next part of the story. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. This is a very familiar scripture. Most people in the room know it. But if, you, if you're tracking with what Jesus is doing, then you're thinking Old Testament. Well, there's a story right after uh, in the Old Testament where Abraham takes his son Isaac onto a mountain. This is his one and only son. He's been waiting on him for a long time. And God tells him to sacrifice his one and only son, to kill his one and only son. And right before he gets ready to kill him, God provides a, a, a substitute. And he kills this lamb instead of killing his son. And so he's telling Nicodemus, hey, just like Abraham had to go on the mountain and sacrifice his son, now I'm telling you in the New Testament, God is going to do the same thing and I'm the son. And so he jumps into 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, they stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son, which is Jesus. And for many of us in the room today, we know John 3.16. But shame on us, we don't know John 3.17 and 18 because it's just as important. And when we think about God, for many of us in this room, there's a natural sense of condemnation. Like we feel like God is mad at us for what we've done. Now granted, some of it's warranted. Some of us are, we don't believe, we've sinned against God, and we do stand condemned. That's one side of the coin. But then on the other side of the coin, some of us are, are kind of the opposite of that. We don't stand condemned before God. Uh, we stand uh, in a place where we don't really believe that God will condemn us. Like we feel like we're a good person. Like I hadn't done uh, that many bad things. And then of course, immediately what we do is start pointing to other people that have done worse things. Well, I ain't like so-and-so and he goes to church. And then we act and, and we, we look at the scripture and say, well, God wouldn't condemn me. But the scripture in both ways says, if we do not believe, whether we're lost in our badness and feel condemned or lost in our goodness and feel like God wouldn't condemn us, that we are born into condemnation. But the good news of the gospel is that God didn't leave us that way. He left heaven and came to earth to become sin on our behalf so that you and I could have salvation through belief in Christ. This is the picture of the gospel and the truth for every person in this room is that God has a plan for your life and it's not for you to be condemned. It's for you to be saved. He could have left us in our condemnation, but he chose to come from heaven to earth and die in our place and become the curse for us so that we could receive life. Now listen to how he ends it. This is kind of the, the, the summary of the whole story. Jesus says, this is the verdict. That means this is the bottom line. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus, he's the light. 
But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil, all right? Why did they kill Jesus, who was literally light, like the, never did anything wrong? Because people love darkness. When light exposes our darkness, we don't like it, and people in Scripture killed Jesus because of it. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. There's no, not one person in this room that likes to be told that they're wrong or that likes to be told that they are the problem. Well, when we come face to face with Jesus, that's what he's gonna tell us. Like, you are the problem. And once we come to grips with that, then we start to understand we need a solution for our problem and there's nothing we can do to be the solution. Only Christ can be the solution, which is the good news of the gospel. Verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth, listen, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And so Jesus is saying every person on earth, every person in this room has something in common. And it's not just that we dress up on Easter to look good. It's not just that we're hungry and want Easter lunch. It's that we love darkness. We all love darkness. And when we come face to face with Jesus, that darkness is exposed. He knows it. We know it. Some of the people around us know it. And instead of condemning us, Jesus invites us into the light so that we may see that the very thing that he's exposing has been done away with in Christ. And this is the invitation that we get from God. It's an invitation of grace. But it takes us being honest and being willing to step into the light to see that the very sin that we're ashamed of and the very things that we've done wrong have been taken away with in God. And so we come into the light and Jesus says, be forgiven. Come into the light and receive grace. Come into the light and find eternal life. And then he ends there. And we don't even know what happens with Nicodemus. Like, did he get saved? Man, did he turn to Christ? And I could show you in the rest of Scripture where I believe he does. He shows back up in John chapter 7 and then John chapter 19 and 7. He's defending Jesus among the Pharisees in the, in the, in the, in the court of law. And then in John 19, him and Joseph of Arimathea are the ones that get Jesus down off the cross and lay him in the tomb. And so we see He's gone from a secret Christian to now he's pretty, pretty meshed in with the following of Jesus Christ. And so today, here's what I want to talk to you about in my little bit of time I have left, 10 minutes. The first is this. I want you to see that there is a major problem with religion. There's a major problem with religion. The second thing I want you to see is that the Spirit of God is necessary. It is necessary. We need the Spirit of God if we are going to be a Christian. And then thirdly, I want you to see the invitation of Christ. So let's talk about these very quickly. The first is the problem with religion. You see, when religion is boiled down to its core, when I say religion, I mean you're following uh, laws or you're doing works and you're doing them to try to earn God's love or earn his approval or earn acceptance before God. But when you boil religion down to its very core, it's about you. And it's about me if I'm walking in religion. It's less about Christ and it's more about us. It's really rooted in sin. Think about the middle letter of sin is I. It's all about I 
and what I'm doing. It's all about performance, earning your way to God, earning the approval of God, earning the approval of others that we want. What do I have to do to get to heaven? What do I have to do for God to love me? How much do I have to give for God to answer my prayers? How many good works do I have to do for God to let me into heaven? What do I have to do for God to accept me? And what happens is religious, religion focuses us on rules and checklists instead of knowing and walking with God. And here's the thing that each of us have to understand. The gospel is the opposite of that. Jesus didn't die for you to follow a list of rules and do's and don'ts. He, he died on a cross so that you could have access to know God, walk with God, and live life in the way that God has designed for you to live and find abundant joy and satisfaction there. The gospel focuses on Christ, who he is, what he's done, living out his purpose in our lives. And it goes like this. Because of what he's done for me, I get to have a relationship with Christ. Because of what he's done for me, I get to be a part of his mission into the world. You see, when our acceptance before God is based on Christ's finished work, then our lives are really free. Like we are experiencing freedom, freedom to know God, freedom to walk with God, freedom to enjoy him. We don't have to worry about heaven or hell. We know we're in with God. And now all we're worried about is not does God hate me? Does God love me? No, we know through the finished work of Jesus, God loves me. He's with me. He's for me. He wants to know me. And so we just enjoy walking in his presence and living out his purposes. This is what Christ came to do for us. But here's the crazy thing about religion. It blinds you. Literally, you don't know. Like most of the people in this room right now, if you're anything like I was before I got saved, you are blinded in religion. You have no idea. If I put a gun to your head and said, are you a Christian? You would say, absolutely, I believe in Jesus. But that's what religion does, is it makes you think you got it and makes you think you're too far along to be corrected when you know you're forcing yourself to be somebody that you're not, instead of allowing God, humbling yourself and saying, God, I need you to do a work in me at my core that makes the things of God not just something that I begrudgingly do, but things that I want to do. It turns have-tos into get-tos because the Spirit of God is at work in our life. Most people that are stuck in religion have no idea. They have no clue. They're convinced that they're a Christian. When they hear a message like this, they tune out because it's for somebody else because they don't feel like they need it. They've been blinded by our enemy and it is a genius plan, I'm telling you. So here's the question. How does a person know if they're lost in religion? How do you know if you're stuck in religion? Well, I would tell you it takes the Spirit of God to unveil it in your eyes. But I'm praying today that the Spirit of God is here and that the Word of God would work with the Spirit of God to just turn on light bulbs all over this room. And so I want you to ask yourself this, how do I know if I'm stuck in religion? One, you gotta examine your life. You gotta examine your life. Do I have a desire for the things of God? Like, do I want to do the things of God? Do I want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Or is it just a checklist? Are the things of God a blessing in my life or a burden in my life? Am I miserable doing the things of God? Are they have-tos or are they get-tos? Secondly, you gotta examine your motives. Why do you do what you do? The things that you do 
for God, why do you do them? What is the motivation behind what you're doing? What motivates your good works for God? Is it a response to his grace and what he's done for you? Or is it an attempt to earn something or to get something from God? Thirdly, you gotta examine your relationship. Do you have a relationship with God? Like, do you have a relationship with the Lord? Do you talk to him daily? Do you desire to know his will in his word? Is your relationship with God characterized by honesty and transparency, or is it characterized by fake and superficiality? Because listen to me, religion loves the fake version of you. Like, it loves it. It loves for you to dress up on Easter and come and act like you, you know, you're, you're into the things of God and then leave and nothing changes. It loves for you to come to God and act like everything's okay and never talk about the serious stuff that's going on in your life. It loves that because Jesus wants you, the real you. This is the you that he wants to transform. This is what it means to come into the light. The reason I'm so passionate about this is because this was my story. Like, this is who I was. Listen, I was, I was the one that, that came, came to church. I was involved. I was reading my Bible. I was trying to do the right things and not do the wrong things. And then I got thrown into a small group in Statesboro. And I started seeing some people who really loved God. And I was like, whatever they have, I don't have. And what they got, I want. And so I began to start asking questions. I began to read my Bible to, for the right reasons and begin to ask, hey, like, what, why, why do they love God? And I'm just kind of doing it because I think it's what I'm supposed to do. And I came to grips with the fact that I had dealt with all the symptoms of religion in my life, but I had never truly allowed God to, to, to solve the issue in my life, which was the core, and to be born again. And I was miserable. I felt like I was being somebody that I was not, and it was exhausting. And the last thing I want is for you to sit in this room and to fall into the same trap of the enemy that I fell into, which is number two, the necessity of the Holy Spirit. This is what I want you to see. Nothing in the kingdom of God happens apart from the Spirit of God. Nothing. Nothing in the kingdom of God happens without the Spirit of God being right in the middle of it. It's the Spirit that drew Nicodemus to Jesus it's the Spirit of God that draws us. It's the Spirit of God that saved Nicodemus. It's the Spirit of God that saves us. It's the Spirit that regenerated Nicodemus or made him born again. It's the Spirit of God that grows us and sanctifies us to be more and more like Christ. It's the Spirit of God that keeps us for the rest of our life. This is why so many of us, we come to Christ for a season, walk away from Christ for a season. No, the Spirit of God keeps us and works in us to keep us close with Jesus, the Spirit of God begins and finishes the work of God in our lives. And listen to me, it works from the inside out. It's not behavior modification, which starts on the outside and tries to work from the outside in. That's what religion tries to do. Do these things, do this, hey, take this out of your life, put this in your life, boom, boom, boom. Some of those things are good things, but ultimately it doesn't get to the core thing, the root thing, which is only what the Holy Spirit of God can do. This is why salvation doesn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has to do a miracle in mine and your life for us to be born again. But when it does that miracle, our life changes forever. But the biggest thing standing in the way of that miracle 
is my, me and you and our thoughts and this natural bent that we have to try to do religion on our own. And it causes us to miss the very best thing that Christianity has to offer, which is God doing an incredible work in our heart. Religion rejects the Spirit of God because it doesn't need the Spirit of God. Religion focuses on outward behavior modification. The Spirit focuses on inward heart transformation. The Spirit is able to do in us what religion never will. It transforms our heart. It change our, changes our desires. It renews our mind along with the Word of God. And ultimately, it transforms our lives forever. Transforms our lives forever. And ultimately, this is number three, the invitation of Jesus. The invitation of Christ is not do more or try harder. You understand that, right? It's, he's not calling you to be the best version of yourself. Like, the script, go back and read the last scripture in John chapter two. It literally says, Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people and he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. And the invitation of Jesus is not to do more or to try harder. It's to be made new. It's to become a new creation. It's to step into the light. How many of you guys have heard that song? Step into the light. This is the invitation of Christ. This is what he's asking you to do. But listen, it's not comfortable to step into the light. Because when you step into the light, face to face with Jesus, he knows you. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. But the good news of the gospel is that that's the version of you that he wants to save. Religion wants the fake version of you. All of that, can you hear Nicodemus' friends just chirping? Hey, dude, that ain't real, man. What are you talking about? You don't have to know this. You don't have to memorize these scriptures. Or you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this, 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 and this, all these things. But what are you talking That's crap. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I don't work from the outside in. You gotta come to me. If you want life, if you wanna be changed forever, it's found at the feet of Christ. And you gotta step into the light. And when you do, you're exposed for everything you are. And the good news of the gospel is God fully knows you and he fully loves you and he's inviting the full version of yourself to be transformed. But you gotta be willing to give it to him. The biggest thing standing in the way of God doing a work in your life is you being willing to be honest. Is you being willing to say, I've missed it. I've missed it. I'm going the direction Nicodemus went. I'm trying to do these things. I don't even like doing these things. I'm coming because my wife wanted me to be here. My husband wanted me to be here. This is what my parents are telling me to do. God wants to do a work in your life. And I'm praying that today light bulbs would go off all over this room. And you would see that if you're doing it from the outside in, you're missing it. The gospel works from the inside out. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. Listen, I don't know where you are. I don't know where you walked into this room today. Maybe you're here to see somebody get baptized or maybe you're here because somebody invited you. Maybe you're here just because it's Easter. But here's what I know. Maybe 
God is trying to do the same work in you that he was trying to do in Nicodemus. And you know that because the Spirit of God is at work in your heart and it's drawing you to Christ. You're seeing him for the first time for who he is and the work that he wants to do in your life. And he's revealing to you your sin. He's showing you, man, I've been doing this wrong. Whether it's lost in your goodness and religion or whether it's lost in your badness and you didn't think God loved you anymore. He's showing you that and he's screaming at you. And he's saying, just come, just come. Your sin is not bigger than his grace. So if you'd say in the room right now, you'd say, Billy, that's me. God's speaking to my heart. And for the first time today, I want God to work in my life. I want him to change me forever. I wanna be born again. If that's you, I want you to be bold. We've got some people around this room that wanna pray with you. They wanna help you understand what God's doing in your life. But you gotta be bold. If that's you, would you lift your hand right now? You'd say, Billy, that's me. Amen. I'll give you a few minutes. Anybody else? you say, Billy, that's me. You gotta be bold. Amen. Anybody else? you say, Billy, that's me. Today's the day. There's another book in the Bible called Galatians. And in this book, what was happening is this church had been led back into religion by some false teachers. And Paul writes to them and addresses it. And he says, why have you let these people bewitch you? Why have you gone away from life in the spirit and moved back into religious rules and to-do lists? So maybe you're in this room today and God's brought you here as a divine appointment to bring you out of this to-do list that you've gotten involved in and to begin to seek God, to know God, to walk with God and allow him to work in your life from the inside out. If that's you today, I'm praying and I wanna pray for you. Father, we love you. God, we're thankful for today. God, we're happy to celebrate Easter together. God, Easter is about life change. God, and this room is full of people. God, that we wanna know you God, we wanna walk with you. God, we need to see areas of our life where we've fallen into religious activity, where our motivations are anything other than knowing and walking in obedience to you. So God, would you do the work in our heart that we can't do for ourselves? God, would you fill us with your spirit? And God, would you send us out to do your work in this community and into the world? Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand and sing?